Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship exists to have fellowship with God and with one another and to extend that fellowship to others through the work of Jesus Christ. This week's sermon is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11 through 11, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to jump back into our series in 1 Peter. I hope you guys had a great week. Um, I hope that you guys had a good time at your small groups and that uh, it was a blessing and encouragement to you during the week. Um, yeah, so please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 7 through 11. That's where we will be studying our text today. It will be 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Excuse me. Well, I want to begin this sermon by posing to you a a question, a hypothetical question. If you knew that within one year that the world was going to come to an end, how would you live? Okay? And maybe more specifically, if you knew that Jesus was going to return within the next 365 days, uh, but you didn't know how many days, uh, how would you behave? How would your current priorities shift, if at all? I was thinking about this question as I was uh, preparing today's sermon, um, and it struck me that there would be a lot I would want to do. The first thing I thought of was that I would want to spend as much time as I could with my wife and my baby. Um, And then I thought about any uh, conflicts I might have, even if they were hidden, that I would search them out and that I would go and find those people that I might have conflicts with and trying to reconcile with them to make sure that my you know, relationships are good before Jesus comes back. Um, and then the, the other thing that I thought about was maybe even just confessing any sort of insecurities or uh, sins that I might have um, that are hidden away um, that I would just want to confess to somebody so that, you know, somebody knew me, you know, like just making sure that somebody knew the true me, right? And uh, I think I would be very scared, and on another level, I think I'd be rejoicing because the Lord is finally returning within that year, just knowing that, right? But then it struck me um, that a lot of things that I wanted to do if this were the case, if this hypothetical situation were to happen, revolved around me, right? Everything everything is self-centered. I want to spend more time with my wife and baby, uh, and that's, the, like, that's just for me, right? I want to resolve my conflict so I can feel better. Uh, I, want to, I want people to truly know me by revealing my insecurities to people, right? And so I would want to confess my sins. It's all me-centered, self-centered. And But what's so fascinating about this passage that we just read in First Peter is that what the, the instructions that Peter is giving us to prepare for the end of all things is not really me-centered. It's not self-centered. There's not a whole lot of self-introspection or self-care or self-actualization. 
His instructions for the end of the world are mainly self-giving, right? It's, a, it's an outward expression. And we're sort, of, we're sort of seeing the end of all things today, aren't we? With the COVID-19 virus continuing to spread and death tolls continuing to rise, uh, restrictions and preventative measures are becoming more strict. And we see kind of a glimpse of what the end of the world is like when you're driving around, if you're lucky enough to be able to be driving around, um, you, you kind of see empty parking lots in places where there didn't used to be empty parking lots. I mean, it's, it's gotten to a place where it seems a bit apocalyptic. And so we've seen some of this stuff. And then with that, we've seen uh, some, some outpourings of generosity right, towards people who may be more exposed to the virus. We've seen more respect and honor to those who are on the front lines of essential care, our medical doctors and uh, the people in the fire departments and uh, the police. This seems to be an appropriate response to something that has affected a huge part of uh, the world's population. And, and what it's done is in moments like this, it's created some sort of maybe like an ambiguous togetherness, a unity, that's like unofficial, but it's this whole idea that we're all in this together. So everyone, let's stay home. Everyone, let's uh, distance ourselves socially. Let's do all these. Let's do all these things together, so we can get through this together. We're all in this together, right? But then there are others who have not responded in the same way, right? They don't think about this in the same way as, as others. It seems that uh, this past week, at least, that I saw in the news, that there are people who are now protesting at different state governments uh, with the idea of uh, staying at home is just no longer, you, you can't do it anymore, right? You're taking away our liberties, our freedoms, these rights that we have, and so uh, they're rejecting things like social distancing and closing, quote-unquote, unessential businesses and things like that, right? There are people, even now, that I've heard of, who think this whole thing is kind of just made up by the government. It's some sort of conspiracy to like take away our rights, you know, that people would just give, willingly give up their rights. That's how far it's become. We've, we have already seen some state governments considering kind of re, uh, unofficially reopening, including our own state, Texas. Yet we've seen in places where the curve apparently is already kind of flattened and where government restrictions are loosened that uh, people still aren't going back to the normal lives that they're trying to encourage. They're trying to encourage businesses to open back up and things to kind of start looking normal again. But the reality is that people who have some common sense are being able to recognize that unless a, unless a cure or a vaccine is discovered, that we may never go back to what we were before, before this pandemic started occurring, right? There may be no back going back to this normal life that we used to enjoy. People are still scared and afraid. And so I can't help but think that the people who are either protesting or uh, like saying that their rights are being taken away or whatever the case is, that they're being a bit selfish, right? I understand that businesses are affected and they're suffering even or they've even closed down. And I understand that we might miss hanging out with friends and families and neighbors. And I miss playing sports or watching sports or going to restaurants and eating. But the reality, again, is that unless a cure or a vaccine is found, we may not be able to go back to that for a while, right? And we have to be just willing, temporarily, to give up some of those freedoms that we used to have. And to ignore these measures that have been put in place is a bit irresponsible. 
And so looking at that, looking at this, this like ambiguous unity that we've created all around the world and then now even this like rejection of everything that's happening, how do you think humanity is responding to all of this? We've seen a tiny glimpse of what the end of all things is like. What do we think about humanity now? The responses that we've seen. And then what are we learning about what Christ would want his church to display to the world in a time like this, where the end of all things seems to be at hand? How do we respond as his church? Well, Peter gives us insight into this in today's passage. The main point of today's passage seems to be this, that we ought to, or let us love one another, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ when he returns. Let us love one another that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ when he returns. I have four points to this. They're listed in the chubo that if you guys clicked on the link in Kakao Talk, it's right there. Um, the four points are this. We must prepare for Jesus' return uh, in prayer. We must prepare for Jesus' return by loving one another earnestly. We must prepare for Jesus' return by practicing hospitality. And we must prepare for Jesus' return by being good stewards of God's gift. And so, follow along. That's the outline of my sermon. It's pretty simple. It follows the passage pretty straightforwardly. Let's begin in verse 7. We must prepare for Jesus' return in prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we've been talking about the context of Peter's uh, commandments to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And all the following commandments as well. It's that the end of all things is imminent. Right? It's at hand. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension right, signify what was accomplished on the, cross of, uh, on the cross of Jesus. And then the following outpouring of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And, and the building of his church is the precursor to the final judgment, the coming judgment, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is the last historical event that is yet to occur in the plan of God's redemption, right? Peter has been consistently pointing us forward to this time. He is always looking forward to the coming judgment uh, when the Lord returns. And the reality of the final judgment is the context of his following instruction. If, if you guys are reading through the verses again, you'll notice that it is just a lot of commandments and his reasoning seems to be that the end of all things is imminent. And he says that we ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded. If you were to read the NIV or NASB, you might read you have to be alert and sober-minded or uh, be of sound judgment and sober-minded or of sober spirit anyway. And, and it's pretty clear what that's supposed to mean, right? You're, you're supposed to have clarity about what you are uh, supposed to be doing during the end of all times or the end of all things. You're supposed to have clarity, right? You're supposed to be able to make the right judgments, discern what is the godly and holy thing to do in times like this. And same with sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness, it's using the same word that would be opposite of being drunk, being sober, right? And so if you're drunk, you're inebriated, you're slow, you're not making the right decisions, you're, uh, you're not doing the right things, right? And so to be sober-minded, obviously, is the opposite of that, is that your, your head is clear, you're alert, you're able to make sound judgments. And it, when you're drunk, you're not alert. That's the idea. 
And so his instruction is for us is to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded. And then he tells us why. For the sake of your prayers. Now, the CSB and the, the CSB version, the NIV and the NASB translations all have clear under, a clearer understanding of what that is because when, you, when I first read this, I thought back to uh, the instruction to husbands that uh, they are to treat, uh, live with their wives in understanding ways. Otherwise, their prayers would be hindered. And so we learned the, uh, during the, when we were going over that passage that that meant that God would, wouldn't listen to the prayers of those husbands who were mistreating their wives. But this is a, a slightly different understanding. What, what this is saying is more that, uh, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. So that you can, be, so that you can pray for the sake of your prayers. It reflects more of what happened in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus went away into the garden to pray alone and told his disciples to wait outside and to be watchful, right, sober-minded, and to pray. And the idea is that with the Lord's imminent return in mind, one must be watchful, self-controlled, and sober-minded so that they may not fall into temptation, the greatest temptation, of course, during uh, Peter's time and to the Christians that he was writing this letter to would be to fall away, fall away and just be absorbed into the society and the culture that they're suffering under. And so these Christian exiles would be tempted to abandon their faith so as to live an easier life, maybe finally start up their businesses, maybe gain some social standing again, and they, wouldn't have to, they could finally live without the burden of persecution. Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness, right, sober-mindedness, drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. The end of all things, right? For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of man. The ideas of prayer and uh, Jesus' return, his second coming, and the idea of being alert and sober-minded, these are all connected in passages all over the Bible, including here in 1 Peter chapter 4. And so the idea is that we must prepare for Jesus' return in prayer. So what exactly is prayer? Pastor David and I use it in our applications all the time. We have exhorted you to make time for prayer in your daily schedules, to actually have a slot in your schedule for just uh, uninterrupted prayer. And hopefully we've exemplified it well for you in our church services and even personally as well. Well, so what is the definition of prayer that we can use? I'm going to borrow from a few books that I've read about prayer. Uh, one of the books that our leadership cohort read together was foundational in us beginning a weekly prayer meeting uh, before the coronavirus had hit. Uh, but it begins, the book kind of begins with a few common ideas of prayer or definitions of prayer. And so some of these common definitions you guys might have heard, and I've, I read through these and I was laughing to myself because it was so true, I've heard all of these definitions of prayer. So for one very common defi definition we hear is that prayer is just talking to God, right? You talk to him like your friend or maybe a parent or a close mentor or something, you would just talk to him. So it's not weird, it's not awkward, you just do it. That's what prayer is, right? Don't be so, don't feel awkward. It's just like talking to a friend, right? Prayer is just talking to God. 
Another definition we see a lot is prayer is demanding something from God. Maybe you've uh, heard this in that you keep asking and persisting and wrestling with God until he finally gives you the thing that you desire, right? This is this whole uh, you name it and claim it sort of uh, theology of prayer. Uh, prayer is aligning our will with God's. That's another definition. That's the one I actually am most familiar with, or at least that's the one I kind of adhere to before reading this book. This is the definition that I've often used of prayer. It's the idea that as you pray, your desires become more and more like his desires, or God's desires, and your wills start becoming aligned, right, as you guys pray. And so that, uh, sometimes that is a definition that we hear, a common definition. Uh, a sort of secular de- definition would be prayers, wishful thinking aimed in God's direction, right? Just wishful thinking. This is a definition that, I, uh, that I've, I'm sorry, this is a definition that's more like what we hear when we, he- when we see uh, thoughts and prayers. And this happens when usually a tragedy uh, occurs in somebody's life or in the world. We, we send thoughts and prayers, right? Or some, maybe you've just heard that prayer is some combination of all these things that we just read off. So what is a good definition of prayer that we can roll with? What is, um, more than that, what is a good biblical definition? What does the Bible say that prayer is? I bought a book to kind of gain a good definition of this, and it's a book that, that studied a, or created a biblical theology of prayer, basically saying it went from every book in the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, book by book, and then found all the passages where it talks about prayer or somebody is praying and then it created a definition for us. Because in the Bible, there's no real definition of prayer. It's not like Webster's Dictionary, prayer is a noun, this is what it is, it's when you fold your knees and you worship God. That's not where the Bible says about prayer. It actually just gives us some teaching of how to pray. Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But it doesn't give us like a good definition, right? And so in this book, he defined prayer as this. Prayer is to call on the name of the Lord to follow through on his covenant promises. Okay? Prayer is to call on the name of the Lord to follow through on his covenant promises. Now, I read this book and it was, uh, I, I don't have time to obviously go through every single passage where it talks about prayer like this book did, but um, if I could explain it very simply, when we ask God in faith to accomplish his covenant promises, okay, he is faithful to answer when we ask God to do things that he has already promised that he would do, he almost has no reason to say no. Right? So in light of this, when Peter is instructing us to be self-controlled and alert for the sake of our prayers, he's saying that if we don't have God's kingdom and his purposes, his plan of redemption in mind, we can easily fall into temptation and the cares of this life and our prayers no longer become kingdom-focused but rather become self-centered. Now, I remember, you know, as I was preparing for this, you know, little section and I read this book, I realized how totally guilty I've been of this in the past, you know, past few months, just even recently. I'm totally guilty of praying for a more convenient and comfortable life. I'm totally guilty of praying for even you, our church members, in a way that doesn't have the kingdom of God in mind. So I might be praying for you and your family's health during this time because like everyone, I don't want you or your loved ones to go through any suffering. I would love if everyone could be safe and be healthy. 
but I'm guilty in saying that I have not prayed for your health so that nothing would hinder you from building bridges to the gospel with other people. Right? I didn't have God's kingdom, his, the expansion of his kingdom, the mission that he has called us to in mind. Right? That, that you might be more able to be a light for God's kingdom and invite others into that kingdom. That people might see your life and glorify God on the, visita- on the day of visitation at the end of all things. My prayers have not been focused on that, but rather just a more convenient and comfortable life. And for that, I pray that you would forgive me for not praying for you properly and being more focused on God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So I pray that you would forgive me. Please forgive me as your pastor for not praying for you in the way that God uh, wants us to be praying for one another. And so our state of sober-mindedness and self Self-control gives us a clear sense of what God is doing in our world and in our lives and in the lives of our fellow members. When we get decided with, when we get distracted with sin and temptation and with the cares of this world, then we can easily lose sight of what God is doing in our lives. And I'm sure many of you have felt this. For those of you who have been feeling a bit complacent in your faith, for those of you who uh, continue to fall into the same traps of sin and temptation. For those of you who are at a spiritual low, you can attest to the reality that these things quench your prayer life. My bet is that if every one of you who are struggling with those things, you don't have a disciplined, active prayer life. That's my guess, my bet. You have to understand that... um, that I've, I too have been in many seasons in my, in my life where sin and shame and the cares and comforts of this world have choked out my prayer life. And so prayer is like drinking. What prayer is, is it's like drinking from the fountain of God's covenant promises. But when you pray to idols and false gods, right, that's what sin and temptation and, and the cares of this world are. When you're drinking from those fountains, you don't realize you're drinking from a poisoned fountain, And what it does, instead of quenching your need for God, it quenches your prayer life and it keeps drawing you back and more and more back to this poison that you're drinking instead of being, your thirst being quenched by the fountain of God's promises. The terrible reality is that this is a vicious cycle, right? We need Uh, We need to pray if we have any chance of breaking out of the cycle of sin and temptation and cares of this world. But we also need to be sober-minded and self-controlled if we want to pray. But if we're not sober-minded and self-controlled, it means that we're probably in some sort of sin and falling into temptation and uh, for the cares of this world. And so we can't pray, but we need to pray to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And you see how this is a vicious cycle. It just keeps you in this loop forever and ever and ever. But I have good news for you. It's called the gospel, right? The gospel breaks this vicious cycle because the sin that chained you to the fountain of that false god, right? 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What about the temptation that you keep falling into? 1 Corinthians, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Are you caught up in the cares of this world? You're worried about bills? You're worried about your family and friends? Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Break that vicious cycle in your life of prayer and not being able to pray because you've quenched it from the fountain of these idols and sins. Break that vicious cycle. Clear your hearts and minds. Practice self-control and sober-mindedness so that you can pray with God's kingdom in mind because the end of all things is at hand. Point number two, we must prepare for Jesus' return by loving one another earnestly. Verse eight says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since, the, since love covers a multitude of sins. So above all, right, above everything, of most importance, of highest priority, at the top, of the top of the list, more than anything else, keep loving one another earnestly. Right? What does that mean? It means to don't stop fervently loving one another, showing and expressing deep affection and concern and care for one another as church members. It's, this, this love is not a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's rather, it's an action. It's a persistent and a pers- uh, it's a persistent pursuit of relationships with other members of the body of Christ, right? And why is that? Why should we persistently pursue relationships with other church members? Because love covers a multitude of sins. As Christians continue to live under persecution, more than ever do they need to love one another and care for one another, not only because people would be losing their businesses and be uh, financially unstable, and so they needed other Christians to come beside them and help them with their own resources. Not only that, but the people who fell into the temptation of falling away from the faith and just being absorbed into their society, they needed to know that they could come back to Christ, that the arms of Christ are open wide, even to those who continued, uh, who, who turned their back on Christ. And Peter, of course, knows this firsthand, right? He knew this all too well after denying Christ three times. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, there's that great story where Jesus sits Peter down and they, have, they eat some fish together, right? And he restores him three times. It says this, that, in Proverbs 10, 12, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 1 Corinthians 13, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so, this is clear. We must prepare for Jesus' return by loving one another earnestly. Today, I believe that, at least in America, in Western society, I believe that people understand this idea of loving one another very differently than what Peter means here, especially with the idea of love covering a multitude of sins. So, in our society, it seems that to love someone means you must accept everything that this person does. Every choice that this person makes, you are to just receive it, right? Like as if it's, everything's okay, right? All their choices are correct and right because only that person, each individual, can decide what's wrong and what's right for them. And then if anybody gets in the way of that, that's unloving. In fact, it's hateful. I read uh, or I heard about this uh, story about a, a former atheist lesbian professor of English and queer theory at Syracuse University. Her name is Rosario Butterfield. I heard a story about her where she was giving a lecture after she had become a Christian in the late 90s. And 
uh, she was sharing about this time where she was counseling this transgender woman, and uh, out of comfort, she was holding her hand, and how uh, she had described it was like, I held her large hand in mind, in mine. And somebody almost immediately in the audience got up and said that that was hate speech, right? That to say that she had a large hand relative to her own hand was hate speech, right? It's hate because apparently uh, saying somebody's hand was abnormally large was uh, to take away a sense of dignity and normalcy in this person's life. And so it was hate speech. Apparently this is what it means to hate someone. I don't think this is what Peter is changing or is saying in saying that love covers a multitude of sins. To simply accept all of the ever-changing values of society and the culture and the world is not what love covers a multitude of sins means. It also does not mean something like sweeping sin under the rug. Loving one another does not mean that if someone sins against you that you have to just pretend that like that sin never happened and that's what it means to be loving. Well, let me think about this. Jesus, if we remember from the message from last week, Jesus came and showed to the disciples and what did he have in his hands? He still had wounds. He had wounds on his hands and his feet and he showed it to them and proved that he was truly the Messiah, that, that he was the one. This is no sweeping under the rug that's happening here. We saw a very public judgment of our sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? This is to judge, like what we saw on the cross is not just an act of love and forgiveness. It was an act of judgment from God. God was judging our sin on Jesus and he killed Jesus on the cross. And therefore, thereby killing our, our sin and our unrighteousness. This is not, that's not sweeping under the rug. If, 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 we, if the, love covering a multitude of sin meant just sweeping sin under the rug, then Jesus didn't have to die. To love one another in times like these is to say that we should not grow bitter and resentful to a brother or sister in Christ who has sinned against you and instead persistently pursue this relationship with them. That's, that is what it means to love one another earnestly. In a high-intensity setting like the ones these Christians were in, in a, in a society of persecution, it would be easy to hurt one another and the cords of unity of that community would fall apart. It's easy to break up a community if you don't love one another and if you grow resentful and bitter against somebody. You know, the, the, my, the, the times that my wife and I argue the most is when one of us or both of us are tired, right? And uh, we have less patience with one another. We get frustrated a lot more easily with one another. But love is what binds us back together in the unity of our marriage, right? We, uh, we bind back together in reconciliation. And while we would say that we are in love with each other, with each other as in a, a romantic love, um, and as a husband and a wife, the reconciliation and forgiveness and the covering of the multitudes of sin against each other is not a romantic love, but the love that led to the covering of our sin through the work of Jesus on the cross. We love because he first loved us, and he, his love covered the multitude of our sin. And so learning from that, we too must do that so that we can have union with one another, that we could maintain peace and unity where bitterness and strife don't continue to grow in our hearts 
And so much so in this sort of society where, we are, where communities are so fragile. So this is the way we must love one another as the end of all things approaches. We must love one another, persistently pursuing one another and caring for one another as the final day approaches. Point number three, we must prepare for Jesus' return by practicing hospitality. Okay? Um, this is verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In verses 9 through 11, Peter gives instruction for Christians to practice with one another. So these instructions were practical. They were very visible for the hostile society to see the love of Christ in action through the church. So Peter begins with talking about hospitality. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So during this time of persecution, the hospitality of believers was essential, right? It's very possible, and probably is the case, that during this time in history, they didn't have separate buildings like we do now. Right now, I'm standing in a very nice sanctuary, albeit very kind of old, but it's still here. It's been here for a long time, and we're lucky to have it. Everything works. And we have uh, buildings, we have classrooms, all these things. But these kinds of things didn't exist for the early church. Instead, they typically had to meet in Jewish synagogues or in public squares. But even then, uh, these Christians in Asia Minor were probably didn't even have that yet. It was too early. They, they didn't build their own buildings and things like that. So what they had to do instead was that specific church members had to open up their homes and invite the church in so that they could gather and worship together and break bread and have the Lord's Supper together. And so this is why hospitality was so essential, in a, especially in a persecuted society, was because they couldn't worship together. Otherwise, they couldn't gather every week and break bread together. And it's, it also is the reality that today we have things like hotels, right? Um, but uh, for, for missionaries who might come in and have to stay for an extended period of time, they can stay at a hotel. But in these days, if there were Christian missionaries who were passing through Asia Minor and passing through these, uh, these hostile societies in these cities that these Christians were in, these Christians had to have an open home for them to stay so that they could uh, invite them in and they could find comfort in a, in a place where they could rest during their travels. But also, these Christians in exile must not only have their homes open, but their hearts as well. This is what Peter meant by to show hospitality to one another, to one another without grumbling. A reluctance due to the inconvenience of hosting someone, or, or many people, maybe overnight or for a few nights, was something that might have been reported to Peter from these churches. So this is why love one another earnestly was put above all the other commandments, was because this earnest love was the kind of love needed in order to uh, make the sacrifices necessary to open both your home and your heart, especially during this time. And so hospitality is sort of a lost Christian discipline. Right? This is definitely something that my wife and I hope to be better at, especially when, God willing, this quarantine finally ends. We can finally invite some people over to our house. In fact, um, before the quarantine hit, we were like starting to plan our Saturday mornings to have brunches with, with you guys, with our church members, to invite you guys over so that we could just get to know each other better and invite you guys into our lives, but obviously we weren't able to, to do that. But in reading this passage, I also wonder about the without grumbling portion of this commandment. Because I know that many of you are friends, right? And you invite each other over to your houses and you eat and you party and you, you know, all those things together, right? But 
but I wonder if the situation were a little different, could we do this, be hospitable without grumbling, right? The without grumbling portion. So let me ask some diagnostic questions because obviously these days this isn't, uh, this, we can't practice this as easily as we'd like. Um, how easily do we feel like guests of our home are inconveniences to us? How easily do we kick people out of our homes when, we're just, when we just grow weary of them or tired of them? How willing are we to allow a friend to stay in our homes in cases of emergencies? How willing are we to allow a fellow church member stay in our homes, maybe a church member who you don't even know that well, but just for, because they are a fellow brother and sister in Christ, that you would let them stay in a case of an emergency or just for whatever, you know? Could we do any of that without grumbling? That's what's so difficult about this commandment. It's one thing to invite a friend over. It's another to invite a stranger over and then do it without grumbling. I'm reading this book by that same author, Rosario Butterfield, the ex-lesbian atheist turned Christian, right? And uh, she wrote a book about hospitality called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I recommend it to you. Um, I heard it's very good. I, haven't, I just started it. I'm like, a, I'm like a chapter and a half in, and I want to I stop reading it because it's so convicting, right? And it's just talking about like radical, ordinary hospitality. Well, but what, one of the first things that it really does talk about is this, that we need to remember that even our homes, our shelters, are gifts from God, right? They are gifts from God, and therefore they are meant to be shared. They are meant to be used for serving others. And which, speaking of which... That leads us to point four. Point four says this. We must prepare for Jesus' return by being good stewards of God's gifts. We must, be, we must prepare for Jesus' return by being good stewards of God's gifts. Uh, uh, verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just a few observations from these, from these two verses. First of all, notice that Peter says that each has received a gift. Every Christian, excuse me, every Christian has a spiritual gift. There are lists of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians chapter 4, and some other places scattered throughout the New Testament. And then, um, while knowing and understanding what some of these gifts are can be helpful, know that none of those lists are truly exhaustive. Not every spiritual gift is listed there. Uh, it's possible that you could have one spiritual gift. It's possible you could have many. It's possible that you have a few, and one is you're more gifted at than the other. That's very possible. But the Bible isn't super clear about those things. What is clear, though, is that every Christian, if you call yourself a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you have a spiritual gift. Right? But, and then continuing, Peter instructs believers that they are to use these spiritual gifts to serve one another. So in each of those other passages that list spiritual gifts, there's definitely... Um, agreement about this. There's clarity that these gifts are meant to serve the church, to serve one another. Peter is in agreement with Paul in this. Gifts are meant for serving the body of Christ. And then using the gifts of God for serving his church 
is what characterizes a good steward. Not just a steward. Okay, we're all stewards. We all have things that we're managing for somebody else. But a good steward, right? A good steward uses God's gifts for serving his church. And then Peter gives a few examples of gifts and how they should be used. For a gift of speaking should be, uh, should be one who speaks oracles of God. An oracle is it's the same root word that we would find the word of God, the logos, it's right, of God. So the should be one who speaks the word of God. For the gift of service, they are to serve with strength that the Lord provides. We don't serve from our own strength, but from the strength that God gives us. So God not only provides the gifts, but the means of using them. That's what this is showing us. We, he gives his word for those he has gifted with speaking. And he supplies strength to those who he has gifted with serving. Right? This is amazing. And why does he do this? This is so that God's hand is in everything that we do, and so he might be glorified in those things. He does everything, even supplies us in all those things as a gift of grace so that he might be glorified. And then Peter ends this short passage with a short doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? There are many ways we can all serve our church in times like these. Uh, churches, a lot of churches are suffering um, during this coronavirus panic. Um, a lot of people aren't giving as regularly as they could. Maybe, they, maybe these churches could uh, find better ways to find, uh, open up avenues of giving. But the reality is a lot of people have stopped giving because they haven't been coming to church. And they suddenly don't feel like giving anymore. Right? But fortunately for us, um, that really, I don't think that, I don't know if that's been the case or not, but this is one way you can continue to serve our church, is that you can continue to give generously from your finances. Right? The staff keeps our church running and keeps the lights on and pays the bills, and all, the, and, all, um, and all these bills are paid from the generosity of our members. And so without you giving faithfully, we wouldn't be able to do all these things that we do, to put on this live stream and have Zoom meetings and, and things like that. We wouldn't be able to do any of that. And I'm personally very grateful for you who have given so that I could partially be supported. Me and my family could be supported by you. Uh, so that I have time to be able to read and write and study and pray for you. But if I could encourage you, and for those of you who do give, that, and, and this is obviously for those of you who don't do it this way already, but if you could give, please give regularly, okay? Um, as opposed to uh, giving only when you have some extra money on hand, right? A lot of us maybe have received our stimulus checks, and maybe suddenly you're feeling a little more generous because of that. But the reality is, uh, budgets are easier to manage and estimate and prepare when giving is regular and not sporadic and not when you just have some change in your pocket, right? If you're consistently giving, what this basically looks like is that if you have a family budget, that you have giving to church as part of your budget. Now, of course, if you're not a member of our church, we don't expect that from you at all, at all. Right? If you're not a member of our church and if, you're, uh, not even, and if you're not a Christian, then we would say, no, please, this is, you don't have to give to us at all. But there is some expectation for our members to be continuously and faithfully giving. Right? And so if you're a member of our church, there's this expectation almost right, that you would give generously out of your hearts because the Spirit of God is in you and working in you and molding you to be more like Jesus. And so giving 
Financially giving is a great way you can serve even today while we're scattered like this. You can serve right now by continuing to regularly join us during our live stream services, right? And it's, it's good. It's, you have to know for, for me and Pastor David and uh, the, the staff and the Korean congregation, we are so encouraged when we start seeing those views go up only because it's good to know that we have saints who are still wanting to worship and listen to God's word. And so please continue to regularly join us. At the same time, um, please serve our church by sharing this link, the live stream link. I've started sharing it on my Facebook and my Instagram and things like that. And you can do the same thing. You have the link. Please use it so that people can uh, join our live stream for those of uh, maybe who aren't believers or don't have a church that has a live stream available and they want to worship with people. Don't be afraid to just throw this link out to those people that they could worship with us. And that way, God willing, when, this, when we're all able to gather again, we'll hopefully have some new faces. This is a great time to evangelize using our uh, church services as the means by which we do that. Obviously, uh, reaching out to one another, you can serve one another by praying for one another. Like, that's probably the greatest thing you could do at this point is to have a consistent, regular time of prayer where you're uh, intentionally praying for other members of our church and their families to be safe from all this and also that they would use their lives and their platforms for building bridges to the gospel. And so, yes, you'd, <clears throat> it'd be... Um, it'd be, or I'd love to be able to come together and be able to serve one another more directly, but this does not mean you don't have God-given gifts that you can't use to serve one another while we are apart, right? Send an encouraging text message. Send a prayer. I had a friend in California who recorded a prayer on a voice memo and sent it to me just praying for me and my family, and I was just so grateful and encouraged for that. You could do that too. There are ways there are ways that we can be good stewards of God's gifts, especially during this time that we are all apart. And so you can see that this section ends with this short doxology. Um, and you have to understand this, this passage, uh, verses 7 through 11, that we went through today. It's sort of the bookend to a larger, broader passage that starts in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter, where it says... Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? That, those two verses kind of kick off this larger section where Peter is exhorting these elect exiles uh, in the church that's scattered in Asia Minor uh, to submit to their human institutions, that servants should submit to their masters and wives should submit to their husbands and husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. All these commandments are right there, are bookended by chapter 2, verse 11 and chapter 4, verse 11, right? And the idea is this, that the Gentiles who speak belong... Uh, the Gentiles who are speaking evil against these Christian exiles will sing the same doxology as Peter does. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? That they may see your good deeds, the, the good deeds of the saints, and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's why this is bookended. Right? The end of all things. So we began today thinking about that. How would we behave differently? What would our priorities look like? Um, if we knew that it was the end of all things within the next year. 
And while that is a very hypothetical question, um, the question poses an actual reality that the Lord will return one day, that the end of all things is really at hand. How will we respond? How will we live our lives in light of that? And the Lord has spoken through his word the, the way that we as Christians should be living. We should be self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful, loving one another, practicing hospitality without grumbling, right? being good stewards of God's gifts and serving one another. And But Peter is abundantly clear that against the backdrop of the end of all things, the final judgment, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, that above all, most importantly, more than anything else, at the top of the list is that we must love one another earnestly. So more than all that, in fact, this commandment to love one another earnestly is the, the fountain by which all the other following commandments find their powers. Love is the fountain by which all other commandments in the Bible draw their powers. Why practice self-control uh, or be sober-minded unless I have love? Without love, I ought to just uh, eat, drink, and be merry because the end is near, right? I should just do whatever I want. Why deal with sins in my life and in others' life, uh, lives without love? Just let them be whatever they want to be and let me do whatever I want to do, right? You do you. That'll be what uh, this sort of society would be if we didn't deal with sin. Why, right? Why, why without love should we be hospitable? Why not grumble, right, when we're opening our homes? Nothing is forcing me to welcome people into my home except love. Why serve others with my gifts when I can just serve myself? I should just probably just use my gifts to try and get rich or die trying. Why serve others with my gifts unless, unless I have love? Do you see that, that love is the thing that binds all these commandments and acts together? And it binds a people together, God's people together. That makes all of these things meaningful. Love is the only thing that makes sense in light of the end of all things. Because you might be thinking, How, what is hospitality? Why do I have to be hospitable when uh, everything's going to come to an end soon? It's because of love. The Apostle Paul says that faith, hope, and love abide, but love is the greatest of these three. Why? And I think I've talked about this before. Faith, hope, and love abide, but love is the greatest of these three. Why is love the greatest? But it's because even at the end of all things, only love will remain. Our faith will be rewarded. Our hopes will be fulfilled. We will not need to practice self-control. We can pursue every pleasure that our hearts have uh, at the end of all things. At the end of all things, we will not need to pray. We don't need to be prayerful because Jesus is right there. There's nothing more to pray for, nothing more to hope for. We will not need to practice sober-mindedness because everything will be crystal clear, right? We will be known as he knows us, right? We will not have to practice hospitality and we will have nothing to grumble about. All sins will already be covered and all relationships reconciled. All brokenness will be fixed. All spiritual gifts will pass away, but love never ends. Above all, we must love one another because it is the only thing on this list that we will still be doing when the end of all things comes. In loving one another, the strength 
to follow these other commands in this broken world we live in will grow. And together we can glorify God on the day of visitation together on the gospel bridges that we have built. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray.